Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Tuesday, January 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Remember a couple weeks ago I said the triple-demic was the murder hornet of bomb cyclones? Well, within that triple-demic, one of the trips was something of, ah, let's call it the zombie bank of cannibal rat ghost ships. Remember that one? That was a good one. But it's too late now. My God, didn't you people think to just leash the Kraken? Health officials are monitoring the so-called Kraken variant. And prevention scientists have named this subvariant Kraken. The Omicron strain nicknamed Kraken. It's dubbed the Kraken. We're dealing with a new variant. Some are dubbing Kraken. If it were only some, that montage would be, I don't know, three people. I spoke too soon because the Hyperbole Express is reaching Mach 5. It's probably a mixed metaphor. Don't care because we're talking about the Kraken. No time to slow down and engage in critical reasoning. It was, in fact, a biologist who named the Kraken the Kraken. Canadian Ryan Gregory, who thinks XB 1.5 doesn't convey the drama and the virulence. This is the most transmissible Omicron descendant yet detected, says Maria van Kirkhove, who's COVID-19 technical lead. Well, yeah, if it weren't the most transmissible, it wouldn't be the new variant of concern. If it was less transmissible, the old Omicron would have just sat on it or ate it. That's how these things work. So it is new, but is it worse? Seems that is it worse is a pretty good question when we go about naming things after mythologically horrible creatures. And in fact, the Kraken, XB 1.5, hasn't been found to have any significant differences in severity between cases of that and cases of COVID inflicted by previous variants, even cannibal rat ghost ship variants. I think that phrase works no matter the order you say it. Ship rat, cannibal ghost, maybe. But it is also scary. So, so scary. And that's the important part, isn't it? You can't laugh off the Kraken a name only associated with legend and the clashing of titans and nothing that's, I don't know, overhyped or easily dismissed. It's been uh, organized and and conducted with the help of Silicon Valley people, the, the big tech companies, the social media companies, and even the media companies. And I'm going to release the Kraken. Oh, yeah. The Canadian doctor may have forgotten that Kraken was shorthand for a promised case of election fraud more virulent than the world had ever known. Remember when Omicron was dubbed the stealth COVID? Remember we were using stealth? We needed something to convey just how sneaky and evil it was. Now we've gone over the top. Kraken's being thrown out there. We've got Kraken. And by we, I mean I. I've literally got the Kraken. Hype and fear are not going to heal me. That I got vaccines and all the recent boosts, that will heal me. And I got them before the Kraken ever got any Canadian medical marketing genius behind it. On the show today, I spiel about some of the new house rules. But first, fair and balanced is what Fox News 
likes to call itself. It's a slogan my next guest both believed and was somewhat stung by. Chris Steyerwalt is the politics editor at News Nation, a former Fox News analyst, and the author of Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. Chris Steyerwalt on the Broken State of News up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Chris Darwalt is certainly the first GIST guest who both testified before the January 6th committee and is a huge fan of the arguably worst candy in the world, Bit of Honey. Hello, Chris. Welcome. Oh, I should also mention that he's the author of Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. This book spits truth. <laughs> Chris Steyerwald, <laughs> welcome to the gist. Well, bit of honey. You know, the thing about candy is mm -hmm. uh, the sour candy craze has so overtaken all normal candy consumption that simple pleasures like the bit of honey uh, have fallen by the wayside. And I understand how it is fast-paced city life. You want your yeah. atomic warheads. You want your Sour Patch Kids. Uh, but for me, uh, 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 Pepperidge Farm remembers the bit of honey. There is an analogy between our candy consumption and our news consumption, is there not? Delivering dopamine hits, stimulating <laughs> the excitement centers have left us so frazzled that we can't even look back on the age of d bit of honey <laughs> and find value in it or find meaning. And if you, do you know the idea of the 50-year newspaper? No, what's that? I like that. If there was a newspaper printed every 50 years, it would differ from the actual newspapers uh, that we think about today. And by the way, we don't think about newspapers today. We should more. We think about cable news. But the cable news, as or the news is experienced in the moment, is just a lot of whipsawing of crises and horribleness. Yes. The 50-year newspaper is almost entirely a steady document of human achievement. So... A half billion Chinese people delivered out of poverty. That would certainly be a big story in the 50-year newspaper. I don't even know if it was ever a front-page story above the fold in the regular newspaper. And the moon landing and the defeat of communism. These are all huge stories in the 50-year newspaper. Certainly something about environmental degradation would be covered in the 50-year newspaper. But it would look a lot different, meaning experience imbibed with a little bit of perspective, it's a lot different from experience as defined by, quote unquote, the news. 
Are you saying uh, Meghan Markle and Harry Windsor would not make the front page? It wouldn't be that their their Netflix interview would not be on page one. Um, Maybe the A head. I don't know of a quirky <laughs> human interest. That's right. I don't know. Do Monar- the bright <laughs> monarchy challenge? No, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe uh, page A thirty five. But the uh, we struggle in looking at history because we look back and people think like, well, like there was the revolutionary war. And then like 10 minutes later, I guess there was a civil war or something. And then I don't know, uh, Pearl Harbor happened and then Woodstock. And now we're here. You're like, right. what well, took a long time, right? And took- then, right, right? Pearl Harbor happened. And then reality became in color. And then Woodstock. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. And then that's how it happened. And here we yeah. are now. And people don't understand how, when we experience things, this is why the end of the year is cool because it gives us a brief moment to say, Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. This, and we're recording. I don't, uh, I don't want to date us, but I we're recording this, uh, during Hanukkah. I love my Jewish friends celebration of Hanukkah and almost all of their holidays. Why they remember terrible stuff that happened and how they got out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. They have faith because they look back and they're like, remember that time we were in captivity? No, not that time. The other time. And then you remember what happened and then, and then, and then, and then, And part of the problem we have now, especially with Twitter, but just with the way that we consume news, it's a Mobius strip. I called it a Mobius strip of bullcrap is that this it's the same stories just keep coming back around. The same narratives keep coming back around. And it seems like you're just treading water. But as you say, when we look at the miracle of human existence in the past 400 years, it's crazy, right? Like what's different and how much better and how much better things are. But that doesn't, you know, what's the joke? Uh, we we don't report on the planes that land. Right. I agree with all that. But there is also a value in recognizing unique risks or risks that are totally. really risky. I would say, and you would agree, that even though there's a lot of climate change coverage that gets hyped and a lot of tri- climate change coverage, you have this great phrase, below the fold, uh, existential dread, which is to say, <laughs> right. the world's going to end, but here are six stories to consider beforehand. Right, before you <laughs> get now, to that. Yeah, yeah. So that doesn't seem to make that much sense. But it, there is still a value in looking at developments and being able to discern, okay, this is big and serious. And is your contention that we've lost the ability to do that? Maybe we could talk about... Uh, Donald Trump specifically, how much of the coverage of him should have been, this is unprecedented and this is bringing us somewhere near the precipice? Well, the it depends on who's doing the reporting and how often we're precipice talking. Um, yeah. I use the uh, example, uh, well, actually, how about we'll go ripped from the headlines, uh, a la Dick Wolf. Uh, ripped from the headlines is, on, um, go ahead. on on Wednesday, t- Tuesday of last week, the Washington Post did the most remarkable coverage of the uh, heroin crisis uh, in America and uh, of uh, fentanyl. It was well reported, in depth, gripping, important, powerful, impossible not to look at. It had context. It went deep. It was great. That's good. That's really good. And it's really important to tell people occasionally. It's it is. Uh, Part of our job description, you know, my line always is the difference between the news and entertainment is that sometimes I have to tell you what you don't want to hear, right? You can, entertainment will is can tell you what you want to hear all the time. Sometimes I have to tell you what you don't want to hear. And what the Washington Post told us last week is that the fentanyl problem in America is not getting better. 
it's getting worse and that the 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 outlook is grim and all of that is tough and they did it in a responsible healthy way so if i'm talking about the end of the world or i'm talking about uh opioid addiction or i'm talking about donald trump vitiating the constitution or i'm talking about whatever i have to treat it seriously and i have to bring seriousness to it I cannot come to the coverage flippantly, and I cannot blithely or loosely or repetitively or disingenuously talk about the end of the world. Um, Roger Ailes said of Glenn Beck, the problem with predicting the end of the world every day is that sooner or later you have to deliver. And we have a lot of people, and something that frustrates me about the way media often works now is that fundamentally unserious people will talk about serious subjects and demand that your respect for the topic be attributed to them, right? So in this segment, we're going to talk about Harry and Meghan and smart styles for the spring. And then we're going to do a wipe and we're going to come back and I'm going to talk about what's going on with uh, the access to electricity in Ukraine. And you're going to treat me like a serious person because the topic is serious. And it's like, you know, I don't know, guys. Maybe tighten up a little bit. Okay. Well, I'll rebut with the always ever thus argument. Edward R. Murrow, avatar of serious newsman, also did fun celebrity interviews in their home. And it can totally be done. It can totally be done. It can to- and is done. And the news does not have to be one thing. And it doesn't have to be all somber, all this or all that. I only mean that if, and I, I, I don't want to pick on individual people, and I, I don't like to um, for various reasons, but let's say this. If Sean Hannity is talking about a serious subject, right, that is a serious journalistically appropriate subject, that doesn't make him a serious journalist, right? That doesn't make him a serious journalist. And we could find the counterparts for that all the way down the line. And the when we talk about, like you, you talk about Trump and norm breaking, the thing in the Trump era, it was very challenging because you didn't know on a on an hour by hour basis sometimes am i insufficiently alarmed or am i way too alarmed am i actually f- creating the problem by being alarmed about it or am i am i asleep as the world burns and that was the real challenge because trump was because of his ignorance and his both ignorance and intentional uh delight Either or, he didn't matter whether he was stumbling into it or whether he was doing it on purpose. His delight in wrecking norms, destroying the uh, the consensus that really was the you know we talked about Pearl Harbor really had been a consensus that had been formed in American public life over the span of 60, 70 years, and he was shredding it and enjoying it. So on the one hand, if I so you can have the uh, you could do the Fox News or you could do the CNN. What were you hearing from a lot of people on Fox News? Oh, it's fine. These liberal heads are exploding, but isn't it kind of great because they're super upset? And then I could flip over to CNN, and it's like the world is ending today. Today's the day. It's over. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's got to be something in between those two yeah. things. And I don't mean to say that it's easy. I mean it's hard to figure out exactly where to follow the bouncing ball. So how did you? personally define your job as it relates to putting the threat of Trump in proper context while you were working for Fox? Well, I just tried to not lie. Uh, that was a good a good place to start is don't lie. Uh, don't say anything you don't mean. 
mm-hmm. uh, is another good thing to do. Um, I would correct people uh, if they said something that was really untrue in front of me, not their opinion, right? Not, I think he's the best, but uh, you know, he's uh, can lift a car over his head or whatever that I would correct the person and do that. But right um, there in the segment, right? It w- wouldn't right. be like the next day after yeah, you got to try to do it in real time, it. right? You got to try to do it in real time. If you're on air with the person, you owe it to viewers to say like, oh, no, just, you know, I, I, and this is selfish because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to abet uh, that stuff. Right, right. Um, you didn't want to be in that clip where you're just nodding at nonsense that you know is nonsense. I so uh, I, but I had a very good, I was very lucky and I had a great job because I was in the Washington Bureau and I was not in New York and I was working on the news side and not on the opinion side. So I was going on special report or I was going on Fox News Sunday. So I'm with Brett Baer and Chris Wallace. I'm not trying to ride the crazy zip line that many people on the right had to ride with Trump, which is like, how do I say that I like his policies, but think that he's personally abhorrent? And if I do say that he's personally abhorrent, how do I say it in a way that I can climb down from the next day to do, to play the game again? Mm-hmm. That's a tough one, right? That's a, that's, I don't think it, I don't, I couldn't do it. Um, and a lot of people did it. And I think the thing is nobody you know, when when Fox made its legal defense of Tucker Carlson, I think it was Tucker Carlson and somebody else, and they said, look, nobody thinks this is news. People laughed and said, like, ah, look, they even they admit it's not news. But they do have a point, or they have a point to this degree, which is if you're watching Hannity and think that you're getting straight news, I, I, I can't help you, right? Mm-hmm. I, there's really, if, if, if you are not a good enough citizen to watch Sean Hannity and say, I think this guy's just on the level. I think he's just a truth teller and he doesn't, he's not picking sides, he's not picking winners and losers. If that's what you think, then, you know, I got a, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. So I think there is that, I think there is that part of it. Um, but that's why I, I, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that they were dying to have me, but that's why it was nice not to have to do that stuff and go on those shows because it would just, that's not, that's not my, that's not my, my, not my zone. So did you, and let's put Chris Wallace or the people, maybe Shep was, Smith was in this category or the many people off the air who you'd work with and who would crunch numbers. And if the margin of error was 3.1 would say, Hey, you know, the margin of error is 3.1. Did you conceive of yourselves as like the salad option at McDonald's? Ah, uh, my, my preferred term, uh, was green beans. Uh, and I was green beans. Uh, and, uh, Look, Fox changed, uh, obviously, over the time that I was there, um, and the news division became less robust over time. Uh, And look, um, when I started at Fox, the premise of Fox was fair and balanced, right? And that was the idea. And the uh, I would look at other networks, especially MSNBC and CNN, and I would say, well, they have their own shibboleths. They have their own stuff. They have their own audience. And as long as the story that I'm working on and the work that I'm doing is wholesome, then I'm okay with it because this is the nature. It's, you know, it's cable news. Uh, it's uh, it's not, I, I could very easily fall into the trap of using the fact that like, well, it was vaudeville. So of course I did blackface, right? Like mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm, the, t- you know, mm-hmm. who cares? Mm-hmm. So you, you, you can easily create an excuse structure, but I can tell you that certainly for most of my time at Fox, 
the work that was going on in the Washington Bureau was good work. And even better for us than my friends who worked the other networks, we were left alone. They didn't care about us. We were the green beans. We were very much the green beans uh, to the point that it was like New York had New York, which was making 80% of the money. And the news division was considered, we were like a drag, the, the, the disdainful, the, the disdainful yet um, accepting term often used was capital J journalism, which was the way of people in the powerful division to say, uh, I get, you know, whatever. Okay. We'll just, it's a, it's an election night. I guess it's capital J journalism. We'll just have to, we'll have to step aside. And that's what changed over time. Um, but certainly, um, I, I was very lucky compared like somebody like if you, if for Shepard Smith or the people working on his team, they're in New York every day. Right. And day in and day out. And, and they're also in a daytime slot, special report coming out of Washington at 6 PM. People called it the news, right? It was like, right. it's, it's time for the news. It's time for the grown up people. Fox news Sunday, same idea. Here it is. Here's Chris Wallace. He's serious. This will be a serious show. So it was a different space. And I was I, I certainly took full advantage of that. Yeah. I'm thinking of a lot of my listeners who aren't predisposed to give someone who worked at Fox that long any benefit of the doubt. But I would just say to them, look, Chris was saying truthful, accurate things to the biggest audience in cable news. Okay, that's one bigger than maybe in some cases two or three times as big as what Steve Kornacki, who we both admire, was saying to MSNBC. And if you generally think that the CNN, New York Times, Washington Post view of the world is more generally correct and Fox News wasn't, then think of what Chris was doing as a corrective. This really important corrective, talking, saying factual things to people who maybe weren't otherwise getting factual things as the Fox viewer. So I would just put that out there in your defense if you need a defense. I don't know. Do you well, wanna? I, yeah. I, no, I don't need any defending. I'm, 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 I'm good. But the uh, Steve Kornacki is a great example. Steve is able to tell the overwhelmingly Democratic viewership of MSNBC things that they don't want to hear. And he's good at it. And I, I'm good at it. I'm on News Nation now. If Republicans are watching, we're watching on election night, uh, and they were ready, they'd come with their popcorn on election night, and I could feel them out there. I could, I could sense them out there, hungry for another midterm wave. Mm. And I was on with Chris Cuomo, and he was anchoring election night coverage, and I'm sitting there with him. And you could, as, as the plane could not get off the runway, right? The Republicans are, and they're like, where are the calls? And the texts start coming in, just like every election night. Where are the calls? Why aren't you calling this? Why aren't you calling up? And it's like, you could feel that the plane, the Republican plane was so weighted down with the expectations of a whole party that was ready for redemption, right? This is going to, this is going to wash away the sins of January 6th. This is going to wash away the problems. Uh, Joe Biden will be humiliated and we will be restored and we're going to pretend all that stuff never happened. And as the plane could not gain altitude and the mountains are coming up in front of the plane and it's trying to take off, they're getting desperate. And I knew that was happening um, in the same way uh, that in 2016, when uh, Fox was ahead of the pack calling for Hillary Clinton, right? I knew that when it was like, here comes Pennsylvania, we're going to call Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. And it's going to make a lot of Democrats very, very unhappy, very unhappy. And they're going to start free. The freak out will start. And you know that as you're doing it, right? You can't, you can't divorce yourself from that knowledge. So what you have to do is you have to have love. 
you have to have love for your fellow Americans. And you can't, if you're, if, if you're saying what they like, you can't spike the ball with them. Mm-hmm. If you're saying what they don't like, you can't rub their nose in it. Neither do you commiserate with them, but you can be gentle with them. You can be gentle with them and you can, and you can say it that way. And you can look, I was proud. The Fox news decision desk was the best in the business. I absolutely believe that our work, the, the great Arnon in Michigan, my boss, Bill Salmon, the team of fabulous bipartisan nerds, we were the best. And I was so pleased and proud to be part of it. And I was proud to call Arizona, we, that we called Arizona for Joe Biden before anybody else. I'm proud of uh, all of that stuff. And tomorrow on the show, Chris will be back to talk about what he did to correctly inform the Fox audience about the results of the 2020 election and what he just couldn't do. We'll also discuss the Dominion lawsuit and where he sees this all of this going. Chris Steyerwalt on again tomorrow. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. I've been reading about and thinking about the bargain that Speaker Kevin McCarthy quietly made to secure his title. You might assume that because he was placating the 20 most undercooked colonels on the congressional corn cob, that we'd all be breaking teeth when the deal came to light. But in fact, there's a slightly different dynamic going on. I'd like to talk about it a little bit. There are a few radical Republicans, and I actually hesitate to use that phrase because radical Republicans was once associated with Thaddeus Stevens and the post-Civil War anti-slavery faction who are on the side of the angels, or at least against the side of the devils. But when you talk about Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, and the lot, I give them no credit for any actual agenda besides self-aggrandizement. But there are others, like... Chip Roy, who I don't agree with, but who really did use the leverage he found at his disposal to enact changes that he could stand behind, that his constituents will like, that I guess most Americans might like, you might even like some. So, you might see all manner of excess emanating from the 118th Congress in the next few months. In fact, you definitely will. But it wasn't the excess that the Never Kevins were fighting for, though the worst of them endorse so much fringe they're barely even recognizable as tassels. All the investigations about the FBI and the deep state and Hunter Biden, all that stuff, well, that's going to happen. But that was going to happen anyway. That was going to happen if Kevin McCarthy sailed through on a vast majority vote. You can't stop Jim Javert Jordan when it comes to an investigation. The real giveaway was on procedural motions about the rules of introducing and paying for legislation. And here's what the radicals won. One, spending controls, at least the promise thereof, paying for new spending. 
They also want some time to consider three days, 72 hours, to consider all new legislation. They also want the idea that they'll be voting on motions to waive germaneness. Wait, is that how the Jackson 5 consolidated power? Let me explain waiving germaneness. Technically, a legislator can't introduce an amendment if it's not germane to the legislation itself. But this is often waived in order to create really big bills that say, oh, they're about infrastructure that wind up being about, I don't know, fishery or funding a weapons depot or something. Because that's how things get done in Congress, and it is kind of ugly. The Never Kevins know that it's ugly, and they want to subject all of congressional action to more scrutiny on the theory that the public will be appalled about how things get things done. I think they may be right about that, but if you scandalize the public about how things get done, well, then what comes next? High-minded reforms, blue ribbon panels? No, most likely it's just things not getting done, which is kind of what they want. Tom Massey, Chip Roy, they're small government Republicans. They campaign on, they live a creed of doing less, the government doing less. But the so-called adults in the room, the 200-plus Republicans who voted for McCarthy every time, who wanted him smoothly elected, they're said to be, you know, results-oriented. They are. They want the results of funding the programs that they like. It makes sense. So what the other Republicans have done, the ones who found themselves having some leverage and not liking the usual order of things, is that they've insisted on these new rules, which will necessitate cutting or at least capping discretionary spending. There are two types of discretionary spending. One is spending on social programs, domestically, usually domestically, and one is military spending. So with that in mind, let's consider two dueling quotes. The New York Times talked about Democratic worries that the Republicans will cut social spending. Democrats, the Times notes, quote, already see collisions ahead, particularly if Republicans pursue domestic cuts without similar reductions in military spending. Aha, but now here's the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Here is the chair, Paul Gigot, talking about the other side of that shiny coin with board member Kimberly Strassel. If you do the math, could end up with an enormous $75 billion cut for defense uh, if they divide cuts for defense and social welfare spending equally. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, this was very alarming to me, Paul. Now, the Republicans that I have talked to have been very quick to say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. You know, look, we can just cut a domestic spending even deeper and actually raise money to the military if we want to. Uh, that's all fine and good to say, except for that they have people within the party who are opposed to more military spending, also opposed to more aid for Ukraine. Um, and as we saw, you can only lose four votes. So you see what's going on. The radical Republicans redeemed so because they didn't have any mainstream Republicans on their side and they didn't have the Democrats on their side. They would say, again, not talking about Boebert and Gates, but they would say, yeah, that is the problem. I'm talking about guys like Chip Roy, a couple other Texans, Keith Self, Michael McLeod, real fiscal conservatives. They would say, correctly, those two cuts you heard, that explains why it's hard to ever cut spending. The Democrats, oh, they'll cut defense spending, but not social spending. The Republicans, they'll cut social spending, but not defense spending. So instead of compromising on cuts, they compromise on spending. They say, don't cut my thing, we won't cut your thing, and nothing ever gets cut. And some radicalism was spent trying to break up that logjam. 
Of course, if they do it through a shutdown or the especially dangerous tinkering with the debt ceiling, it will do much more harm than good. And in fact, cutting spending overall, yes, we have $30 trillion in debt and just servicing that eats up so much that we could be doing and that needs to be addressed. But I would have to, I would like to point out that one way to address that is raising taxes. So if you think I've been complimenting Chip Roy and those of his ilk, the fact that he would never do that is a calumny against him, I would say. So those guys, they had their moment. They're trying to get a little something done as they see it, which they define as Congress doing less because they will never touch taxes. However, they're not what they call themselves, which is solutions oriented. To be fair to them, they do know that if they ever voted for raising taxes, they'd have to wave their seats goodbye. And just as they were making some headway on the waving of germaneness scourge that has beset their august body. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. Want to advertise? Sure you do. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu. Thank you for listening. Release the Kraken. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com